Scripture reading this morning, the Old Testament reading first, is Psalm 132. Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. And our New Testament reading from the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, verses 18 to 24. Before I, before I begin this reading, we saw there in Psalm 132, uh, in the beginning of the psalm, it talks about how David was the one who desired to build the Lord a, a permanent dwelling place in Jerusalem, in Zion. He wanted to build the temple. The Lord uh, ordained that his son, Solomon, would be the one to actually build that temple. But that psalm there is celebrating God's desire to dwell with his people, to make his home with his people in Jerusalem, uh, in the temple at Mount Zion. So let's turn now to our New Testament reading, John 14, verses 18 through 24. This is God's very word, brothers and sisters. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we seek your face, and we ask that you would be gracious to us and speak your word to us and make our hearts uh, to open to it and to receive it in faith. This is a work that you alone can do, and we depend on your spirit for. We pray you do it for Christ's sake. And for our good, 
Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we were in the Gospel of John, this, this series in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14 that we've been doing. So before we dive in to the text here, let's just take a minute to situate ourselves in the context again. Um, so it's, it's it, in the narrative here in the Gospel, it's, it's Thursday night. It's the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. Think about that. Think about the, 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 the atmosphere in the room as the disciples are sitting there at table with Jesus, celebrating the Passover together, and Jesus is telling them he's going away. He's going to, he's going to be lifted up to die. He's just washed their feet. They've celebrated the Passover meal. In a few short hours, Jesus is about to be betrayed into the hands of the Jewish leaders, and then he'll be lifted up on the cross. He'll be crucified. And Jesus, as he's, as he's sitting down here in, in this upper room with his disciples, he knows that all this is about to happen. And he knows that when it does, his disciples are, are going to panic and scatter. Their, their world's going to be getting flipped upside down. It's gonna, that's what it's going to feel like to them. So here in John 14, he's, he's trying to get them ready for that. He's, he's giving them spiritual ballast for the, for the storm that's coming. Ballast is the weight in the bottom of a boat that keeps it from capsizing in a storm. And Jesus here is giving his disciples spiritual ballast, some, some weighty, heavy doctrine that can keep them in the coming difficulty of the next, of the next few days. But Jesus doesn't just have in mind those next three days. Um, he also has in mind uh, uh, the disciples going forward as they, as they are trying to carry out his mission. He doesn't just have in mind their, their immediate comfort. He does have in mind their immediate comfort and encouragement. But he also has in mind the mission that he's placed them on. These are the ones he's, he's going to call as his apostles to send out on mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So his earthly ministry is ending here. He's about to ascend to his Father. He's equipping them. He's giving them comfort, and he's equipping them with strength for the mission that he's placed them on. And of course, this isn't just for these first disciples either. This teaching here in the Upper Room Discourse is for every single age of the church. It's for our comfort and encouragement. It's ballast for us when the storms of life are coming, but it's also it's also not it's not just a comfort, it's also to strengthen us and equip us for the mission that Christ has placed us on of of proclaiming him, proclaiming his gospel. How can we how can we do these things? Right? Christ is telling his disciples, I'm leaving, I'm going to my Father. How can how can they, how can we the church fulfill the task he's given us without him? How can we advance his kingdom without the king? Well, the answer Jesus is giving us here is that it's because he's gone to heaven. It's not, it's not that he's gone away, therefore we can't do the work. It's because he's gone away that we are equipped with comfort and, and strength and able to do the work. It's because he's gone away that we can thrive and, and grow. Last time, uh, we've looked at several reasons why this is the case here, why it's, it's because he's gone away that we can thrive as, as a church. Last time in particular, we looked at how Christ sent his spirit to indwell us. He, 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 told us, he told us last time in the text that he sent the very spirit who indwelt him to indwell us. That, that the very same Holy Spirit who indwelt Jesus and equipped him for a life of obedience and faithfulness is the spirit that's now at work in us, equipping us for, for a life of faithfulness and obedience. What a comfort 
That is, that the Spirit who is in Christ is now in me, giving me these things. That's what we closed with last time. And our text this morning really begins in that, in the, right, right there with that same point. And, and it expands on it. It develops it for us. So this is, the, this is the point this morning. It's this. Jesus reassures us that if we love him, he himself will come to us, right? By his spirit, he himself will come to us. And the triune God will make his home with us. The text here is weaving together these two ideas um, and, and there's a promise here, and there's also a precept or a command here for us that, that are being woven together. And we're going we're gonna to look at them not just uh, not going verse by verse, but looking at those two themes as they weave throughout this text. Some, uh, some writers in, in Scripture will write in a very logical, straightforward way, kind of like rungs of a ladder. From, they go in a straight line from premise to conclusion. Right, but John's writing is a little different as he recounts Jesus' words to us here. It's, it's more like a spiral staircase. He kind of, he'll, he'll introduce a theme and then he'll swing around and then return to it again. But he's, he's nuancing it and developing it as he goes. So we're just going to, for clarity's sake, take these two ideas that are woven together in this text, the promise and the precept, and look at them, look at them in order that way. So first, the promise. Christ promises that he will come to us. And the triune God himself will make his home with us. There's a couple parts to this promise here. The first is this, a living union. We see this in verses 18 through 20. A living union. As we, as we start, uh, let me ask you a question just to get you uh, thinking about this. What is the nature of your relationship with Christ? With, with the Lord Jesus. Which, which statement is, is more your mentality? Christ is in heaven and not with me in my daily life. Or, or this statement, Christ is as present and real to me as my parents or my children or my spouse, those whom I live with on a daily basis. Which of those two statements is, is more uh, your mentality? We see the Bible it does teach that Christ is in heaven. Um, and, and we see Paul say, my desire is to depart this life and be with Christ in heaven, for that is far better, over in Philippians 1. But what, what Jesus is emphasizing to his disciples here in John is that we already have a real and living relationship, a union with him. Already in this life. Jesus says here to his disciples, listen to his words here in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus is present with us. This is something we already enjoy. I don't think he's talking about his, his, his uh, resurrection here, or, or, or at least not primarily, or, or his final return at the last day. I think, I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming and being present with us. Back in verse 17, just the, just the, the very previous verse, he says, the Spirit... Uh, dwells with you, the Spirit will be in you. And then right away, verse 18, he says, I will come to you. He's making the closest possible link between himself and the Spirit. The Spirit's coming, that means I'm coming to dwell with you. The Spirit's no second-class substitute, right? This is the Spirit who wound up into Christ. He's now in us, giving us a real, living relationship with the ascended Jesus. What a precious source of comfort and strength. 
Jesus puts it so tenderly here, doesn't he? He says, I won't leave you orphans. That's exactly what we would be without him. Think about an orphan. Someone with no parents. Someone who's unprovided for. There's no shelter. There's no provision. You're, you're vulnerable. You're, you're, you're in danger. You're, you're, you don't have what you need. That's who we would be apart from Christ sending the Spirit to us. But Christ says, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. He's, he's our everlasting Father, as Isaiah 9, 6 says. He's, he's an ever-present guardian by His Spirit. He's, he's with us. So we're the very opposite of orphans. We're, we're sons. And listen, brothers and sisters, that means that, that there, if Christ is the one who's our guardian and the one who's providing for us, there's no one who is better loved or better provided for or better protected or nourished or taught or guided or guarded than those who are Christ, than the church of Christ, because he's with us. It's a glorious promise. Maybe you hear it and you think, well, that might be what Christ promises, but that's not what my life feels like. And that's not what the history of the church looks like. I don't feel like I am all the time well-guarded and well-guided and well-protected and well-provided for. And the church doesn't look like it's always well-protected, well-guided, well-provided for. Sometimes it looks like an orphan to me. And we can look at other people's lives, people who aren't Christians, who aren't uh, uh, trusting in Christ, and, and it looks like they're being better, taken better care of than, than we are. Who's, who, who is taking care of the church? Who's watching out for the church? Brothers and, and, and sisters, the, the reason we can trust Christ's promise here, in the face of, of this experience of, of sometimes feeling uh, vulnerable and, and under attack and not well provided for, the reason is this, that through all the adversity, through all that difficulty and the setbacks and the frustrations and anxieties and the grief, the pain that, that we do suffer, Christ is not absent in that. He is present with us in it. Think, think about Jesus himself. Was he well-loved, well-protected, well-provided for? But what did his life look like? Humiliation, difficulty, suffering. All those things are actually the sign of the Spirit's presence working in him. The sign of the Father's love. After, after his death, of course, he rises again from the dead in glory. He ascends to the Father's right hand in glory. He, he enters heaven. He, he opens and enters heaven for us. That's, that's why he endured all that lowliness and humiliation and suffering for our sakes. This is, the aim of, this is the aim that God has for every single part of our life in all that adversity and grief and, and, and challenge that we might be brought like Christ, by Christ, to heaven, to, to a fuller joy, to a, to, a, to a better reward than anything we could have here. Right? The, 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 what, what God is doing for us now, keeping us and guarding us now, is not, is not from physical harm, or not, not, not from these sorts of dangers, not from being marginalized or, 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 uh, or challenged or, or, or aggrieved but he's guarding us from falling away. And he's keeping us for an eternal inheritance, something that's far better 
than anything we could have in this life. In other words, He is giving us the greatest possible good. He's not going to satisfy us with a temporal, cheap, short-term good. He is is working in us likeness to Christ and and an eternal good. So yes, He is keeping us and guarding us. We are well provided for. The church is well provided for by our Savior. He's bringing us eternal life. Not this life. He's bringing us eternal life. That eternal life is exactly what Christ brings up next with His disciples. Verse 18, He's told us that we have this relationship with Christ, this spiritual union with Christ, present with us by His Spirit. Then at the end of verse 19, He tells us something further about this union with Himself. He describes it as life, rooted in His own life. He says, because I live, you will live also. He's been talking about His uh, his Spirit coming, giving us a relationship, a union with Him. Now He tells us that this union is, is a living union. It's, a, it's, it's rooted in His life, and it produces life in us. And what a promise, right? What a, what a promise that is that Christ would make His disciples the night before He's crucified. They're about to see Him nailed to the cross and buried in the tomb. And He's, he's telling them, I live. What does He mean when He says to them, I live? He's not just saying that I am physically alive, is he? No, no, he's saying more than that. He's saying, I am, I am life itself. He said this earlier in John, right? John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's the source of, of all life. He is the source of resurrection life. After Jesus dies, he is raised from the dead in, in a new body. He enters eternal life as the God-man. And, and on the basis of that, he opens eternal life for all who are trusting in him. Because I live, you also will live, he says. What does this mean for us? Well, Jesus is saying eternal life is found in him. It's found in him. And it's not like he's a, he's a, he's a fountain of youth that we go and we, we take a drink and it's like a commodity. It's something he gives us and then we go on with eternal life separate from him. No, he's saying, I am eternal life. You find life in me, in that relationship, that union with me. Right? In John 15, just a few verses later, he's going to tell his disciples that he is the the vine, the, the tree, and they're the branches. Right? That life is found in being connected with Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you connected, united to Christ with his spirit indwelling you? then if you are, he says to you, because I live, you also will live with this eternal life. The eternal life doesn't start for the believer after death. Eternal life starts when we are united with Christ. The, he, he's already been raised. And that resurrection life is a work in us even now. Now, it's not yet worked out into our physical bodies or this physical creation. We continue to get old and get sick and fail and die and suffer. But, 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 but in all these things, the principle at work in us, right, the sap that's flowing through us, isn't death anymore. It's life because we're united to the, the ever-living one. What a comfort that must have been to the disciples as they looked back on, on this night. I'm sure later on in their ministries, 
as they wrestled with challenges and setbacks and difficulties, and as they ached with homesickness for Christ in heaven, these, these words came off into their minds to encourage them and strengthen them. Christ is alive. We will live also in Him. We have eternal life in Him. Paul reflects on this same truth over in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is why we don't lose heart, Paul says. Because, because even though the residual effects of death, yes, they're at work in our bodies, our outer selves, the more important thing is this. Life is the principle at work in me. Christ's life is the, is the dominating thing, the sap flowing through me. It's easy to lose heart. It's easy for discouragement to set in. And, and, and in these bodies, this life is so often a life of decline, of, of growing weakness and growing inability. You can feel like death is exactly what is at work in us. But Christ says, because I live, you will live also. We are united to the ever-living one. His life is at work in us, brothers and sisters. So do take heart. Because of your union with Christ, you will not die. Though your body die, you will not die. Christ himself has said so. This is the living union we have with him. So Christ says, I'll come to you by my spirit. I'm going to give you life, eternal life in myself. And he goes on describing this promise for us. And he develops it even further in the next part of our text. We've been talking about the promise he's, he's, he's telling his disciples, he's making us here. The second part of the promise that he gives here is this, the triune God himself will make his home with us. This is what Jesus emphasizes next in verses 20 and 23. So here's verse 20. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So this is the result here. Jesus is describing the result of the first promise, the first part of that promise that he made. This is what that, relate, that union with him, that relationship with him leads to. It leads to communion, fellowship, not just with Christ, but the, the whole Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this, this might be the, the most staggering thing Christ has said yet. He's telling us, you will have fellowship with the very persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says here that, that he's in his Father as the eternal Son of God. He has this perfect relationship with his Father as the eternal Son. They've been dwelling forever from all eternity in a relationship of perfect love. And he says, and, and now you're in me, and I'm in you. So you're part of that relationship now. You are being brought into the relationship between the persons of the Godhead in Christ. That relationship, that fellowship of love. Now, of course, we're brought into that relationship as creatures. We're not, uh, we're not divinized. We're not, we don't enjoy the kind of fellowship the Father and the Son and the Spirit enjoy with each other because, because they're of a different kind. They're the Creator. We're the creature. But nonetheless, we're brought into a sweet relationship with them. What's, what's this like? I was trying to think of an analogy for this. My, my boys are at uh, that wonderful age when the, what they want most in all the world is to be with mom and dad. Waking or sleeping, they want to be with mom and dad. 
And not just with, with us uh, separately, but, but with us together. They, they love it when we are all together as a family. Now, now mom and dad have a relationship that the, the kids aren't part of. right? They're, the kids and the parents aren't equals. But the children love to be brought into the family, brought into the, the love and the friendship between the mother and the father. That's what they love most. That's a bit what this is like. We're brought into fellowship with the persons of the Godhead. Not as equals. We always stay man. But, but nonetheless, we're brought into this fellowship and we can taste of this goodness and love which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share. That's verse 20. Verse 23 then circles back to the same idea, but expands on it. Not only are we going to enjoy this, this wonderful fellowship with the whole Godhead, but, but he will actually, the triune God himself will come and make his home with us. Uh, Jesus tells us here, we're going to be the beloved dwelling place, the home of God. We've seen this in, in the Old Testament reading, Psalm 132, we read earlier, this Old Testament theme of, of how God dwells with his people in the temple. Um, we read there in Psalm 132, the Lord says that Zion, Jerusalem, where the king is, where the temple is, that's, that's where he wants to have his dwelling place. And then, then in, it, it, the New Testament comes along, Christ comes along, and he says in John that, that the temple's been pointing to him all along. We see this earlier in John's Gospel. John 2, 21, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So he's the one who's filled with the presence of God, where God dwells with man. But then, not only is this applied to Christ, it's also applied to the church. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So as the church is united to Christ, the true temple, the Spirit fills us and God dwells with us, makes His home with us. That's what Christ is promising here. You will be the place where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Holy Triune God, dwells. We're going to make our home with you. How can that be? How, how can the Holy God make his home with unholy sinners? Well, it's in Christ. Because Christ has made atonement for our sins. He's, he's died for the forgiveness of our sins. He's lived this life of righteousness counted to us so that God can, the Holy God, can make his home with the people that he's made holy to himself. So God has chosen us as his beloved dwelling place. We are the very dwelling place of God. So brothers and sisters, look, consider the fullness of the promise that Jesus is making his disciples, making us here in these first verses of, of verses 18 to 21 and, and verse 23. He's saying, I'm going to come to you by my spirit. You're not going to be orphaned and alone. It's going to be a, a, a union based out of my eternal life. That life is going to be working itself out in you. And the triune God is going to bring you into fellowship with himself and make his, his home with you. He's going to make you part of his family. These are glorious promises. There's, there's so much comfort here for us and so much strength here for us for the task Christ has called us to. But we need to see one more thing. And our second point, and that's, who are, who are these promises for? Who gets to own these promises? And say, so, yes, that's, that's a promise for me. Because we see here, the promise is not made without distinction. This is not a blank check. There are some who receive this, Christ says. There are some also who, who won't receive this. So let's look at this second point here. The precept here, the command that Jesus gives. You must love me and obey me. 
Here Jesus sets up this distinction. On the one hand is the world. The word world in John is almost always negative. Um, it, it refers to the realm of unbelief and sin and, and being in rebellion against God, rejection towards God. It's the realm that's dominated by Satan. The, the, the ruler of this world is coming, Jesus says at the end of John 14. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, at the end of John 16. So the world is the place of enmity towards God in John's Gospel. This is how the world responds to Christ. They, they're blind to Him. Verse 19 uh, says that the world will see me no more, Jesus says. Of course, he's about to leave. They're not going to see him in a physical sense, but there's more going on here. He's saying, it's because they have not seen me in a spiritual way. They're not going to see me any longer at all. They are blind to who I am. They're unable to see who I really am. This blindness that the world has leads to a hatred of Christ, a rejection of him, and then disobedience to him. Jesus says in verse 24, those in the world do not love him. Those in the world, therefore, don't obey him. It's interesting there. Jesus defines love as obedience. If you obey him, it's the proof of your love. If you disobey him, it's the proof of your hatred of Christ. Many, many will claim to love the Lord Jesus, right? Many uh, in our day will, will, will still claim, yes, I love Christ. I love him. I love his teaching. But do they obey him? Do we obey him? Obedience, that's, that's the mark of the true disciple of Christ. Obedience flowing from a heart of, of love is the mark of the one who will receive what Christ has promised here. He says, these promises are for my disciples, those who love me and obey me. Verse 21 makes this clear. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So, brothers and sisters, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you keep His commandments? What are the commandments of Christ? It's the entire moral law of God. It's the command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus has just demonstrated this self-sacrificial love to his disciples by getting down and washing their feet. He's about to go demonstrate it a lot further in his death on the cross for them. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. That's one of the commandments of Christ. We can think of the Ten Commandments and all their implications, all they command us to do and not to do at a heart level, at a word level, at a deed level. See, Jesus seems to have in mind here the whole scope of discipleship. He wants disciples who, who don't just give them a little obedience here and there, but a life of obedience. Is that how you see your whole life under the heading obedience to Christ, a disciple of Christ? This should be the this should be how we understand ourselves, how we think about ourselves. Yes, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm an employee, I'm a son, a brother, a citizen, a neighbor, but in all of these things and over all these things, I am a Christian. I am in Christ. I am following Christ, and to love him and obey him is my constant priority. So how do we how do we respond to Jesus' command here? He's just given us this glorious promise to come and be with us. 
that God will love us and make his home with us. But now we hear this. He says, this is for those who love me and obey me with that life full discipleship. Sounds like a condition. If I don't love and obey Christ like that, then this promise isn't for me. And it's sort of like one of those tracks you pick up. It looks like a $100 bill on one side. You pick it up, you turn it over, and it's just a track. Right? There, there's no real cash. Like it was, it was too good to be true. And it's like Jesus, it can feel like he offers us this promise here, but then he, he pulls it away just as you were about to enjoy it. He said, you don't qualify. Sorry, you, you don't qualify. Is that what Christ is doing here? By giving his disciples this promise and then saying, if you love me and obey me. No, that's, that's not what he's doing. I think we're supposed to respond in two ways to Jesus' command here. I think first we're supposed to hear this and then we're supposed to be devastated. Because we don't qualify. I mean, that's right. We don't qualify. My life is not this life of obedience and love. A whole, you know, a whole life of following Christ faithfully. My life all too often looks a lot more like the world that doesn't see Christ, that hates Christ and doesn't obey Christ, than the, like the life of a disciple. So we should look at this and feel disqualified first. That's where we should start. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't stay feeling disqualified and discouraged and devastated. Because what has Christ been doing every single minute of this upper room discourse? He's been fixing our attention on himself and on his sufficiency for us. What has he said so far? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No word there of our participation and our earning God's favor, getting to the Father. No, this is something Christ does for us. He says this then to his disciples in this same, in this same passage in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. He said to us, I'll send you another helper to be with you forever. I promise to give you everything you need for faithful obedience to me. And what is he about to do? He's been saying these things, encouraging us. What's he about to do? He's about to go in John 17 and pray that not one of the disciples would be lost. And then he's about to go to the cross and secure salvation for all his own. So, so understand, he's not saying here, these promises I'm making are for you once you've earned them by your love and obedience. Now go and with the help of my... Uh, excuse me, he, he's saying, I have earned these promises for you by my love and my obedience. Right? Christ doesn't point us first to obey and then he'll bless us with the promises. No, he's saying, I've earned these things for you. They are yours because of me. And then he says, now, listen, I'm going to equip you with my spirit for these things. You're not on your own to go and love me and obey me. No, I'm going to send my spirit, my very presence to be with you, to give you the ability more and more to love me and obey me. The love and obedience we're called to. It's not the root of salvation, it's the fruit of it. It's not the cause of new life, it's the result of that new life that Jesus says will be in us because of his life. So brothers and sisters, Christ calls us here to commit ourselves to love him and obey him. So, so do that this week. Be a disciple of Christ. Say, that is who I am this week. I'm going to follow him. So get in his word. Pray over his word. Marvel at who he is and love him and, and read his commands and obey him. Don't live like the world. Live like a disciple, a follower, a student 
sitting under the teaching of Christ and following what He commands you to do. Does that seem like too much? It should. Christ promises His Spirit to strengthen us and help us. And He promises His presence to be with us. So ask Him. And take heart. We are not orphans. Remember the promise Christ gives us in this very text. He is working His life in us. He has come to us by His Spirit. In Him, the triune God dwells with us and has made His home with us. So let's draw strength from these promises and pursue a life of loving obedience to our Savior together. Let's pray.